The material shared within this podcast is based on the personal experiences and learnings of the presenter. Coloplast has paid the presenter for sharing this information. Nothing within this podcast is intended to be used as medical advice and or used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Coloplast Professional Bowel and Bladder Matters Podcast, where we explore various important topics related to ostomies and continence. I'm your host, Rick Rayome. I'm a urologic nurse and clinical consultant with Coloplast. Today's podcast guest is Dr. Sarah Diaz-Valentin. Dr. Diaz is a urogynecologist and is dual board certified in obstetrics and gynecology and female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. She is the medical director of Women's Health for Reed Health Indiana, where she and her team diagnose and treat complex clinical problems associated with dysfunction of the pelvic floor affecting the bladder, bowels, and reproductive organs of women. Dr. Diaz completed her undergraduate and graduate programs at the University of Puerto Rico, graduated magna cum laude with a bachelor's in general sciences in 1996, graduated with honors from medical school in 2000 and completed OBGYN residency at the University of Puerto Rico Medical Center in 2004. In 2009, she completed her female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery fellowship, as well as a master's degree in clinical research from the Indiana University School of Medicine, Methodist Hospital. It was here that she also completed postgraduate training in pelvic floor neurophysiology. Dr. Diaz joined the faculty at the University of Louisville in 2009 as an assistant professor and became division director and program director of the Urogynecology Fellowship Program. Dr. Diaz moved to private practice in Indiana in 2012. She is a fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and a member of the American Urogynecologic Society and the International Continent Society. Today's podcast topic is the female journey to assessment and treatment of lower urinary tract symptoms. Dr. Diaz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Rick. In our previous conversation and podcast, you mentioned that a significant portion of your practice involves managing patients with urinary incontinence, lower urinary tract symptoms, and voiding dysfunction. Can you define these issues for us? Uh, There may be some overlap there. Absolutely. Patients uh, come in most of the time with a chief complaint uh, saying, I am bothered by X. And from that, we typically perform uh, validated questionnaires that they've already filled out and give us an idea. And when, when we talk about validated questionnaires, we're essentially saying, what's the best way to ask a question to a patient in a way that it's understanding and that we can reproduce. So that if I ask a thousand women, they're essentially understanding the same thing. That's not always the case. And sometimes (laughs) they'll say, I don't, I don't know what you were trying to ask there. Mm -hmm. Um, Or they might say, I'm not that bad because I didn't feel everything positive, but essentially um, there's a, a whole spectrum of conditions or symptoms that they can be presenting with that may mean completely different conditions or diagnoses. So Mm -hmm. it's very important to focus. And actually the International Continent Society refers to this as the approach of how you target a patient or how you tackle a patient that comes in with a urinary complaint. What's the symptom? 
-hmm. What's the sign? What are they telling you objectively that happens? And then how do you evaluate it? So for instance, talking specifically about perhaps lower urinary tract symptoms, they may say, I feel urgency, which is the complaint of a sudden compelling desire to pass urine, which is difficulty to defer. So you cannot delay that. Mm -hmm. Um, Or they may say, I'm in the bathroom all the time and it's disrupting my work, it's disrupting um, teaching students. I got to go, I got to go. And I'm sure you've mentioned that. Or at the same time, that same problem is happening, not just during the day, but at night. Mm -hmm. I can't sleep. I'm waking up at night. And then that could be all the sensation, but also that can translate into accidents. I feel like I got to go and I don't make it on time and I have Mm -hmm. an accident. Or they may just tell you leakage, incontinence, losing the bladder. There's all this spectrum of symptoms that the patients describe. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of being receptive, listening to um, and asking targeted questions to define it more. Gotcha. I mean, uh, what it calls to mind to me is in my previous life before joining Coloplast, I'd see patients with bladder issues, both males and females. But it seems like a lot of times the patients had the, I got it. When I've got to go, I've got to go. And the ladies oftentimes would say, I'm fine until I put my hand on the doorknob to go into the bathroom versus the patients that say, when I'm walking towards the bathroom, there's no urge and urine is just falling out. So you may have, would you say it's pretty safe to say that you may have patients describing those two things and there's really something else going on that's potentially covering that or causing that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And many times they'll say that or they'll tell you, I'm afraid to go visit my um, mm. daughter over the weekend because I'm afraid I'm going to have an accident in the bed. Or mm. I can't jump with my grandkids or even with my kids on a trampoline because I'm going to have an accident. And that's obviously hinting more toward mm-hmm. stress and confidence. And something interesting is that Many of these patients, I would say, I've not done a study, which would be a great future uh, um, (laughs) research idea if it hasn't been done, is a lot of these patients also mark in their questionnaires feeling of incomplete bladder emptying. So it gets to be this big storm of uh, symptoms, um, and sometimes they even come with a label diagnosis that just, you know, makes uh, matters more complicated. My doctor found mm-hmm. urine, uh, I found blood in my urine, or I have UTIs, and that's all they say. I have UTIs. I have recurrent UTIs. Mm-hmm. Well, how often have you, as a urogynecologist, have you seen patients come in and they they talk about the the specific symptom that they're concerned about. And during the course of your conversation, you say, well, you know, how long have you been having this other problem? That's not necessarily normal either. And the the woman says, oh, I thought that was normal. I'm over the age of 65, or I just thought that came from having babies. Is that Does that happen as well? Very much so. Or, or you know, if you ask them, well, you're saying that you're going to the bathroom every hour and they'll say, oh, I've, I've always done that since I was little. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and, and it's interesting because sometimes I even like to ask them, especially younger patients, did you wet the bed? Because that mm. can hint to other types of conditions, um, especially in young women. So, uh, no, absolutely. And they may tell you, oh, no, but I'm not bothered by the stress incontinence. I'm bothered by this. I just, it, I would say the most 
bothers something to a patient is that inability to delay going to the bathroom and the mm -hmm. implications that it has in their life. Mm. Right. They can't leave the house. Correct. <laughs> Becomes Correct. a big problem. Well, you've given us a really good walkthrough on the patient history and how important that is. Can you speak more about specific assessment techniques beyond history? Absolutely. So once a patient comes in with that validated questionnaire that kind of puts this all in one document that we can reference, we confirm it with the history, and then it's time for doing an exam. And something interesting to me is as you listen more and more, your history taking skills get more refined. Mm -hmm. And I feel like about 80% of the time before I examine the patient, I have a good feeling of what's going on. So my physical exam, although I do it very methodical in the same order so that one step doesn't affect the other, I already am looking for something. I'm not just doing a routine exam. I'm looking for something. And like I tell my patients, the negatives are important as the positives. If I don't mm -hmm. find anything, it doesn't mean there's not a problem. Great point. There could be a problem because they always think my bladder is dropped and maybe mm -hmm. there's none of that. Um, but it's still the symptom is significant. So, um, or the pelvic floor function or the neurologic exam. So that physical exam is critical to evaluate muscle, nerves, uh, structures. Um, and within that, um, the added things that are basic evaluation, does this patient have a urinary tract infection, urine analysis, uh, urine culture in higher risk patients, and then a post residual is this patient truly emptying, whether mm -hmm. it's with a bladder scan or with a catheterized urine sample, depending on the context. I see. You know, prior to joining Coloplast as a clinical consultant, I had an opportunity to work with both urologists and urogynecologists. And when it comes to the uh, pelvic exam, the physical exam, urogynecologists did a test called a, a POP-Q test or a POP-Q assessment. That was a really like taking a pelvic exam to the next level as far as I was concerned from a urology background. Can you describe the POP-Q? What is it? What does it mean? Where did it come from? Absolutely. So before the POPQ was described, which was described early on, uh, mostly by Dr. Rick Bump, he used to be in uh, North Carolina, I believe at the time, but um, we as providers always used to refer to prolapse as um, grades or Baden mm -hmm. score, which was the other scoring system, but it was hard to reproduce for studies for research studies. So the mm -hmm. POPQ really came about as a research strategy, but mm -hmm. it quickly became adopted by a lot of clinicians because it does provide a guide that you can measure over time and compare. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't tell you how large it is within that context, but essentially what you do is while you're examining the patient, you divide the speculum um, to evaluate the different compartments and to your compartment apical compartment, which would be the top of the vagina or the uterus uh, or any structures that are left there and the posterior compartment. And you essentially assign vectors to each of those areas. So different mm -hmm. portions of the vagina have different measurements and you impute them in this. It looks like a TikTok. <laughs> right. It's like an, a software app on yeah. iPad or something. Correct. Mm -hmm. And with that victorial system, essentially, it gives you a reproduction 
of what the patient has mm -hmm. um, so that we can measure it over time and see if it's mostly anterior compartment, posterior compartment, or in the case of over 80% of patients, a little bit of everything. And that's the key here with the POPQ, you're using it as a tool to measure objectively what's present and see what is added to it. Because most mm -hmm. of the time, these things don't happen in a vacuum. They mm -hmm. all affect each other. There's competition for space. So mm -hmm. if the bladder drops, what is the cervix doing? And when I say bladder drop, a lot of people talk about bladder drop, but truly we're talking about the vagina dropping and the bladder. It's an innocent bystander dropping with it. Same thing with the rectum. Mm -hmm. um, so you want to take into consideration everything in an objective way that you can measure it over time. I see. Well, the thing that I always appreciated with the pop cue back in the day was that it generated a, a drawing where you could actually show that to the patient. And sometimes they go, oh my, I had no idea that my uterus had dropped and or that my bowel had dropped. And that's what's caused me to have issues with constipation. Oh, I get it now. So it seems like it's a great education tool as, as much as an assessment tool as well. But I know we're going to cover POPQ in a lot more uh, detail when we talk about prolapse in future podcasts, but would you agree that it both has an assessment component, but also can be a great education tool for patients? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I feel like my experience with patients is uh, I usually tell them and prepare them. I'll say, hey, you'll, you're going to hear me call a bunch of numbers. Mm -hmm. Don't be alarmed. At the end of the visit, I will tell you what that means. And I tell them, you know, these numbers mean that you have good support and mm -hmm. that, or it means that you have very mild relaxation or prolapse, which doesn't mean that you don't have a bladder issue or that it explains your urinary symptoms. It just mm -hmm. so happens that's one less problem you have at the moment. And so let's target the other things. And at that point, the patient may say, oh, that's great. I'm mm -hmm. done. They just wanted reassurance that their bladder is not dropping because they hear horrible stories from their family members or friends. Right. Um, or they may <laughs> say, okay, now what do we do about it? And mm -hmm. the next thing is, do I need surgery? So it does help to frame the conversation. And it's interesting because sometimes they'll say one thing going into the visit. And as long as I say, you don't have problems, they say, okay, good. I'm gone. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> so the exam can serve as a reassuring and uh, a reassurance piece. And mm -hmm. yes, that if you can actually print that little picture, they they can tell, oh, yeah, no, I do look like this. Like I this is my anatomy. I'm OK. It's a very interesting tool. So can you tell us a little bit more about your treatment plan and your approach for managing lower urinary tract symptoms or LUTs or LUTS, it's, people say it different ways, in the female population? At the end of a visit, I usually tell them what the positives and negatives were and then formulate a plan. So if a patient is having any of these complaints and, for example, their post-vervicidual is normal, their urine is negative, but they still are complaining of urinary frequency or urgency or I don't completely empty my bladder. Um, I love to do avoiding diary. If they couldn't mm -hmm. bring it in, which is usually very hard, mm -hmm. um, I send them home and I tell them, you're going to have this homework. You're going to do this avoiding diary because it is so revealing for mm -hmm. some patients. They go three times in a day mm -hmm. and they tell you they're going a lot because maybe they're supposed to be in a factory line for eight hours and they can't stop at four hours. And that's mm -hmm. bad for them. But then you see a patient that will go 
at every one ounce in their bladder, they'll go or Mm -hmm. they'll have an accident. So the voiding diary is critical. But at that point, I can target that later on. I usually will talk to them about how I manage it in terms of stages. So I like a ladder approach, which would be life changes, behavioral changes, conservative management. And that could be quitting things that they're drinking or eating, pop, coffee, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, even some flavored waters, smoking, alcohol, artificial sweeteners. So those are the big ones and citrix. And then if they have a weight, you know, a weight problem, sometimes weight loss, weight loss Mm -hmm. has been proven to be a huge um, tool to helping patients with lower urinary tract symptoms. And finally, behavioral changes, time voiding, go often or Mm -hmm. don't go as often, give yourself a little bit of time, do Kegel exercises. That would be kind of my baseline first step. In a patient with a hormonal issue, I many times will talk about genitourinary syndrome of menopause and say, you know what, you need a little bit of estrogen and let's start this because that is a big component of your symptoms. And sometimes that's it. And I see the voiding diary and then I intervene. If they've already shown me that it's a very bad problem for them and they have a significant level of bother, which is the other piece of those validated questionnaires, how is it affecting them? They're not riding in a car. They're not going. They're not exercising. They're not enjoying life. They're not going to church. For some people, that's a big Mm -hmm. deal. Mm -hmm. So then you'll say, okay, you know what? Why don't we start with the second uh, step in the ladder? So let's go to the second step. Why don't we do physical therapy? Why don't we do um, medication? And then at that point, we might start a medication to help with that. And set the expectation. I might give you the side effects or, hey, it takes time. This is not a quick antibiotic. This will... This is more of a chronic thing and it will take time. And then if not, then there's the third line treatment options, which typically we don't discuss in the first visit unless this patient has already been on medication. They've already, Mm -hmm. they'll tell you, I've Kegel myself to death already, doctor. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go to physical (laughs) therapy for Kegels, but the reality Mm -hmm. is obviously physical therapy for the pelvic floor does, it's not just Kegels. There's a lot to it um, in basically holding the hand of this patient and and telling them how sometimes their behaviors do impact their urinary tract uh, function. And in the third line treatment options, we have all sorts of things. We go by um, American Urological Society guidelines, AUA Mm -hmm. guidelines, and there's sort of an algorithm that people refer to um, that we can walk the patient with it. So you give them a roadmap of how you're going to go about this And very important is telling them, this is all important. Mm -hmm. Um, I tell them, it doesn't matter what medicine I give you. If you are drinking 64 ounces of of pop or Mm -hmm. or soda, pop is in the Midwest, (laughs) soda, well, there's no medicine that will do it. I tell them, it's like having allergy medicine. And here you are holding your cat, cutting the grass, doesn't matter what medicine you take, it will give you, uh, it will give you the symptoms. So we have to manage Mm -hmm your behaviors along with um, the medical intervention piece. So it's a truly a holistic approach and working potentially towards surgery and other interventions. So what do you do if those initial steps really don't alleviate the patient's lower urinary tract symptoms? I think it's important there about that. I think we've talked informally about this, the horses and the zebras, right? Mm-hmm. So you always want to treat, most patients will be in having conditions that are the most common things. It is a horse, let's treat it that way. And if it doesn't respond, 
what else could this be? And then that's where you may incorporate um, imaging, mm-hmm. neurodynamic testing. Um, and for those, there's different things that you're looking for. With, in the imaging piece, for example, uh, pelvic floor. Is there something in the uterus and the ovaries? And I'll give you a case example of that. Um, that could be affecting the bladder, fibroids, uh, cysts. Um, is there a tumor in the bladder? Do we need to look inside? It's, is there a bladder cancer? Mm-hmm. Um, in the imaging piece, um, is there a pelvic floor support issue, dynamic cystoproctograms or dynamic MRI? Um, if the patient has an obstructive uh, defecation or fecal incontinence, sometimes that can be very helpful, anorectal manometry. So is the patient not emptying because her uh, rectum is not relaxing? Mm-hmm. Or is it because truly there's a defect there that it's keeping it or making the sensation? There's something called tenesmus and anismus. Mm-hmm. Anismus is when they don't relax completely. Uh, tenesmus is I feel like I got to go all the time, but it's not real. It might be a rectocele. It might be an intracele. It might be any type of pelvic floor support issue. And finally, with urodynamics, you're putting together the urinary symptoms this patient had Maybe mm-hmm. already having avoiding diary, knowing it's not a UTI, and let's look for those answers. Let's get down and dirty and see uh, how is she storing and how is she emptying the bladder and mm-hmm. put it all together. And so at that point, we can intervene and we can offer more advanced therapies once we have that advanced information. And um, with the zebras that I didn't touch on would be, is this patient having a neurologic condition? Does this mm-hmm. patient have multiple sclerosis? Mm-hmm. Um, this, this patient was born with something she doesn't know about, um, how quick does the symptoms develop? I've had patients that, um, tell me, oh my God, this happened quickly. Is this a cauda I mean, those are rare things, but it can happen. A sudden bulging disc or something, you know, double vision, uh, mm-hmm. you know, numbness in the hands. I just had a patient that had numbness in the hands all of a sudden ended up, she was having, a cervical spine issue. She just had emergency mm. surgery and she's doing better. Um, wow. The case example that I wanted to give you was this patient, and, and we can touch base on that, um, uh, a patient, a young patient that came with uh, lower urinary tract symptoms. Uh, we did a postbar residual uh, bi-bladder scan. She had a postbar residual of like a thousand. It was something really that didn't add up, didn't make sense. Long story short, it was a humongous uh, peritubal, peritubal cyst. She had gynecologic surgery and her symptoms overnight improved. And wow. that goes to tell you, you got to think outside the box sometimes because it right. might not make sense. Um, she still has some lower urinary tract issues that we might need to tackle, uh, avoiding dysfunction, things like that. But ultimately, it's important to do that global assessment. That truly is a horse versus a zebra uh, scenario. Well, we've got just a minute or so left, and I thought we can talk more in future podcasts, and we plan on that, about different obstacles patients may present, you know, on treatment. But what would you say in closing, Dr. Diaz, what is a key takeaway for our listeners regarding treatment of lower urinary tract symptoms within the female population? I would say the most important thing uh, for patients with lower urinary tract symptoms is listen to the patient. Mm -hmm. What are they there for? What is the symptom? What is the deal breaker? What are, what kind of goals or expectations they have? 
and then um, buy-in, uh, have patients buy-in, establish rapport, because from there, everything else will stem. Patient either believes there's a problem or there's not. And if there's a true problem, you want them to trust you to make those heart recommendations, for example, a patient that needs to be catheterized. So mm -hmm. it's important for you to do that. Listen, uh, show an, an empathic approach and um, go from there. That's what I would say is the takeaway uh, message. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Diaz, thank you so much for joining us on Bowel and Bladder Matters in our podcast and sharing your expertise with our audience. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Bowel and Bladder Matters podcast, part of Coloplast Professional, where we believe clinician education related to ostomies and continence matters. For more educational resources from Coloplast, visit us at coloplast.us professional. Thank you.